You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't on the Savage Lovecast. If you think your Thanksgiving is going to be awkward, if you are already dreading November and it's never too soon to start dreading November. If you think any of your Thanksgivings have ever been awkward, make a mental note or better yet, set a Google calendar alert so you'll remember to spare a thought and maybe save an extra slice of pecan pie for Will Sanderson, a gay man who lives in Los Angeles. Will's dad, Bill Sanderson, is a state representative in Tennessee, first elected to office in 2011. The elder Sanderson is proudly pro-life and pro-family, according to his campaign website. He joined the legislature to preserve the values that have defined our families for generations. While in office, Representative Sanderson has voted to block bans on discrimination against gay people. He's condemned same-sex marriage. He's attacked gay parents. His vote actually helped nullify an anti-discrimination statute in Nashville because Republicans believe in small government and local control up until local governments start raising the minimum wage or banning discrimination against queer people. Representative Sanderson has also advanced legislation attacking trans people and pushed through a bill that would allow licensed therapists to turn away gay clients and anyone else who offends their religious beliefs. Personally, I wouldn't want to see an anti-gay shrink myself, but the pro-gay pickings may be pretty slim in Tennessee. Anyway, it must have been awkward for adult gay Will to head home and hang out with anti-gay Bill at Thanksgiving. But Thanksgivings at the Sandersons just got a hell of a lot more awkward. The elder Sanderson resigned from the Tennessee State Legislature late last week to spend more time with his family. No, wait, I got that wrong. He says he resigned last week to spend more time with his winery. That's a new one. And it's just a coincidence that Representative Sanderson resigned the same week, practically the same day, that Tennessee political journalist Carrie Wade Gervin reported that, can you guess? Anti-gay state rep, anti-gay voting record, can you guess where we are headed? Anyone out there who guessed headed for Grinder got it right. Not only was Representative Sanderson trawling Grinder for Dick, allegedly, and Bill Sanderson denies it, but Gervin reports that this has been going on for years and has pretty much been an open secret. In addition to sending out his nudes and engaging in chats and, according to some of the people Gervin spoke with, arranging actual hookups, this family values conservative has been telling gay men on Grinder that his marriage was open as far back as 2013. And he was, of course, talking about his second marriage, no word on whether this family values Crusader's first marriage, which ended in divorce, was open or not. Now, this is nothing new. Homophobic politicians getting caught with their hands in the cocky jar or their mouths wrapped around it. That happens at such a clip you practically need an Excel spreadsheet to keep the fuck up. I mean, does anyone besides me remember anti-gay Ohio State rep Wesley Goodman, who had to resign after he got caught fucking a dude in his Senate office? Or anti-gay Oklahoma State Senator Ralph Shorty, who had to resign after getting caught in a motel room with a 17-year-old boy. Or North Dakota State Rep Randy Boning, yes, Boning, who had to resign after he got caught sending nude photos to men on Grindr. Now, in fairness, not every anti-gay state politician who's forced to resign got caught in a gay sex scandal. Iowa Senate Majority Leader Bill Dix, Crusader for Family Values Bill Dix, and a man whose last name is Dix, 
he had to resign after he was caught on camera hooking up with a female lobbyist. A straight sex scandal for a guy named Dix. I don't know how the irony gods could ignore that low-hanging fruit. Anyway, Will Sanderson isn't the only gay person on the planet with homophobic parents. Far from it, lots of gay men and women have to navigate relationships with people we can't help but love who are homophobic. Thanksgiving is tricky enough when your dad is a homophobe. Thanksgiving is even trickier when your dad is an anti-gay elected official who votes against your fundamental human rights whenever he gets a chance. And I imagine Thanksgiving is infinity tricky. When you find out your homophobic anti-gay elected official dad with the anti-gay voting record had to resign after he got caught looking for down-and-dirty guy-to-guy play on Grinder, allegedly. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. Twice as long, more guests, no ads. Lucian Greaves, co-founder and spokesperson for the Satanic Temple, joins us for what is episode 666 of the Savage Lovecast. Greaves is witty, he's charming, his political activism makes you think and laugh and think some more. Not only do we talk to Greaves about his work with the Satanic Temple, we also ask him to weigh in on some of your dilemmas, including, and you're going to want to sit down for this, the co-founder of the Satanic Temple tackling your wedding questions. All coming up today on the Savage Lovecast. Hey, Dan, my boyfriend and I have been in a long-term um, five-year open relationship that's been really healthy for us, and we've had um, a lot of fun and enjoyed ourselves um, until today. I had informed my partner that I started seeing someone who was stimulating stuff that he just couldn't um, mentally, and my partner was like, okay, and then I let him know that I was having him up to the house that I was house sitting at to spend a couple days with me, which my partner said okay to. When I was at the house with this guy, my partner sent me a barrage of texts saying how I was breaking the rules, how this was unfair, how he was sitting at home and how I was fucking this guy. And all he could think about was that. Um, And he said, if you don't make him leave immediately, this relationship is over. Um, I told him that I discussed this very clearly with him and he knew that this was happening and I wasn't going to ask this guy to leave. He'd driven like three hours to come up and see me. Over a lot of drama, my partner ended up driving to the house. Um, Luckily, I was not there. Screamed, where the fuck are you? Where the fuck are you? Um, And then proceeded to take pictures of the house that I am taking care of, who happened to be my boss's house, and pictures of their bed that I had sex with this guy in and send it to my boss. This was very dramatic to me, and my partner has never behaved in such an irrational manner, though obviously my bosses are legitimately very upset with me. Uh, I'd love to know what you think I should do here. Obviously, I deeply regret sleeping in their bed and having sex and also having a guy come up to sleep and having having him sleep in their bed with us. But this is just a really fucked situation, and I'd love your input on it. Sounds like a really fucked up situation. That's my input. Sounds like a relationship extinction level event. Doesn't sound like something that you two can come back from, this violation of your trust. 
And this attempt to punish you for what? You guys are five years into an open relationship. You say it's been healthy and happy and, and functional all this time. I don't want to point a finger at you at all. The only thing that you mentioned that may have been different about this particular person is you told your boyfriend that he pleasured you in ways or hit you in places and touched you in spots that your boyfriend couldn't. And maybe your boyfriend had some huge meltdown about feeling inadequate or replaced or suddenly feeling competitive uh, around this particular guy at this particular time in a way he hasn't in the past. None of that makes what he did okay. And I don't think any of that makes what he did excusable. Breaking into that house, taking pictures of the bed, sending those pictures, including the bed that you fucked into your boss, whom your house sitting, potentially costing you your job, getting you in trouble in this way. Yeah, I think that is the end of this relationship. And maybe there are some lessons to learn here. When you're in an open relationship, you're having great sex with someone new. You want to be sensitive to your partner's feelings. And it may be true that sex with your new partner is exciting and thrilling and new in different ways. And maybe there's some things that they do better than your partner ever did or could. That's not information your partner needs to know. And that may be information, if shared, that makes it hard for your partner to be at peace in this open relationship. I've often said that when it comes to our parents, we need to run them on a need-to-know basis. Maybe with our partners in open relationships, there's a little bit of need-to-knowing that has to go on, a little bit of good judgment that we have to demonstrate. And maybe your partner doesn't need to know that this person gives better blowjobs than anyone else you've ever been with. Maybe the considerate thing to do, using blowjobs as an example, maybe the considerate thing to do is to omit that unnecessary detail. Keep your mouth shut and enjoy the blowjob without rubbing your partner's nose in what they may perceive as their inadequacy or they may perceive as your perception of their inadequacy. Again, not attempting to pin the blame on you. Just want to, you know, we always want to learn the lessons when we leave a relationship going forward. And this may be a lesson that you need to learn. The lesson your boyfriend or ex-boyfriend needs to learn is that driving three hours up to this house where a girlfriend is house-sitting and breaking in and taking pictures and sending those pictures to her boss for whom she was house-sitting and an attempt to get her fired to punish her for having sex in the context of their open relationship, that that is inexcusable. And that got him dumped. Hey, Dan. I'm a gay man living in the Northwest. And um, the reason why I'm calling is because I ran into something completely fucking horrifying i was house sitting my parents house and i turned on the computer and there were two icons that came up and i don't know if like my bluetooth was on on my phone or something like that or if it like synced into the computer but i clicked on it and basically it was all the pictures of every single guy on manhunt that I've associated with and uh, like all, like half of them were provocative pictures like, or nude pictures or whatever. But anyway, it scared the living shit out of me. Like, why the fuck would that be in my parents fucking computer? Do you think it's synced in with my phone? But these were all people that I've like talked to like a long time ago on manhunt and i just don't understand why the fuck that was on my parents computer i have gone on manhunt on my parents computer in the past 
but I don't understand why, like, the fuck all that shit showed up. Anyways, do I bring this up to my parents, or do you think it's a hack or something that's fucked up, like, with my phone? I just, I, I don't know what to do. Like, I'm, I'm completely out. My parents don't give a shit, but they've been kind of acting weird recently, or maybe I'm just starting to think that they were acting they've been acting weird recently i don't know i have never granted anything like this in my life robert bentley was the family values bible thumping i think even a preacher governor of alabama who had to resign after it came out that he was having an affair with a woman named rebecca mason and the affair was exposed in part because bentley's text messages were synced with bentley's then wife's iPad, and she read all of the steamy text exchanges between her husband and this woman that he also employed in state government and threw a lot of state money at, and it was a huge scandal, and he had to resign. So yeah, sometimes devices sync with computers and iPads sync with computers, and that can out a person, but this isn't outing you. Your parents know you're gay. Your parents know you're sexually active. They don't care. You don't care that they know. If you think they're acting weird because somehow when you were at or near the house, your manhunt profile synced with their computer in some weird way that you don't understand and that, frankly, I don't understand either. If there's any tech people out there who can let us know how this could have happened, please give us a buzz. It might have something to do with the fact that you cruised manhunt on their computer, you say. You also mentioned that these were old pictures. Maybe they were downloading automatically to your parents' computer when you were using your parents' computer to cruise on manhunt. I don't know. Or maybe they all got off your phone somehow. If your devices are all synced, if mom and dad are paying for your phone somehow, I don't know, but somebody out there does know. The thing I think you need to do here is directly address it with your parents. If if these tiles or icons were on your parents' computer in such a way that you noticed them, I guarantee you, your parents noticed them. All you got to do to them is say, oh God, I'm so sorry. That was embarrassing. I hope it didn't bother you. I deleted them. If any more pop up, let me know. And then obviously we need to do something about our phone or my phone. And when I'm in the house, being sure to turn off Bluetooth or whatever it is that is resulting in this embarrassing sharing between your devices and your parents' computer. But I would address it directly. You spotted them on their computer. I guarantee you, your parents spotted them on your computer as well. Get out in front of it. Hi, Dan. I'm a straight 49-year-old woman in a relationship for seven years. We have a six-year-old daughter, and I have a problem I hope you can help me with. I love my partner, but when he pees, he misses at least half the time when I step into the bathroom. We only have one. I step on pee. Our bathroom is not large, and the toilet is close to the door. I've tried to talk with him about it several times and he says he'll try to do to to not do it but it continues to happen and it's really demoralizing to me I think I'd choose living in different places where we're not raising a child together we're both uh, big fans of yours and he really respects you I hope you can help us out here the obvious answer here is for him to sit down when he pees. Now, a lot of men don't like to sit when they pee. They've been standing all their lives and spraying everywhere all their lives. 
And some men find it emasculating because sitting to pee is what women do. And fuck that shit. Men should sit to pee. But there is a thing. There is something that men experience that may leave them disinclined to sit when they pee, even if they don't have any hangups about quote-unquote emasculization. Some men find when they sit to pee that their bladder, their urethra doesn't fully empty or drain. And then when they stand, more comes out. He could be sitting to pee for all you know and then standing and more comes out and that's the pee you're trotting through. There is a middle ground here. He can stand to pee into a jar and then pour that jar into the toilet. Fully drain, fully empty his bladder, fully drain his urethra into a jar, pour it in the toilet. Keep a cap for the jar in the bathroom so we can put the cap on it so the jar doesn't end up stinking up the bathroom. But then you have to tolerate the existence of this pee vessel that lives in your bathroom that maybe sits on the back of the toilet tank. So when it's the middle of the night or first thing in the morning and he wants to take a pee and doesn't want to sit down because he doesn't fully empty when he sits down, he pees into the jar and then pours the jar into the toilet. And I guarantee you his aim will be better when he's pouring the jar out into the toilet than when he's standing up bleary-eyed in the middle of the night attempting to aim his dick at the bowl. Hello, Dan and, and anyone else. I'm 70. Married, and my partner supports a non-monogamous relationship as long as it doesn't interfere with her life. D-A-D-T is the best description. When I'm dealing with looking for somebody else, I emphasize that the relationship must be based on the sexual as that's what I'm lacking. The person I have met online is 30, lives in Seattle, but is not here now. She'll be visiting for a while in August and then back in September. Travels a lot, but I don't know the schedule. So met on an online dating site. She sent me enough pictures and some video to make me believe that she is real. I've had many problems with scammers, liars. However, I asked them now for two selfies from the same location. I know that's not definitive, but firstly, I would like to know, except for the meeting, is there anything one can do to help with the identity? There like a standard way that one deals with identity issue? It seems like they all take offense, even the ones that end up sending me some identity stuff that convinces me. I mean, they, they find it all pretty tough that I question. Not sure that there's any other way. Anyways, here's another issue. Since we are not to meet for a month, is there any advancement of the sexual realm which makes sense? For example, if this person doesn't like oral or give oral, then this is probably a deal breaker for me. I mean, should I waste a great deal of time getting to know the person without knowing this about them? I guess I can just hope that we are somewhat sexually compatible. But how would you approach this issue? In other words, would you start to talk about your sexual interests or sexual limitations before we meet? Also, of course, there is a campfire issue here with the age difference. Uh, you have any thoughts on this? A person can be real and provide you with selfies and provide you with videos and still be a scammer. There is no standard way to deal with identity issues. And I think it is perfectly legitimate for someone who's met a person online that wants to get together with them purely for sex. And while I think it's perfectly legitimate for someone who's met a stranger online who wants to get together for sex to ask for some proof of identity. Some people are going to be offended by that. Some people are out there online looking for quasi or nearly or wholly 
anonymous sex and don't want to give their personal identifying information to the people that they're thinking about sleeping with early on when they don't know that person and don't know if they can trust that person. But you have a right to ask and they have a right to say no. And if they say no, then you have a right to cut off communication with that person or if they're really that tempting, continue to communicate with that person in hopes that you'll establish some base level of trust and then they'll give you the information that you'd like to have before meeting up. This particular woman isn't in Seattle, they tell you, and isn't coming to Seattle anytime soon. And you ask me what I would do in that situation, how much of my time I would invest in that person. And the answer is not much. I would tell that person to get in touch with me when they are in town. Rather than wasting a lot of time on someone or emotional energy on someone who isn't available, who isn't around, time and energy and an investment of time and energy that I could be directing elsewhere to someone who's likelier to be available and likelier to exist than this person. You bring up the campsite rule. That's my commandment that people should leave their partners in better shape than they found them, particularly when their partners are younger or less experienced. As lots of people have pointed out, we should all try to leave our partners in better shape than we found them, regardless of age or experience levels. But your concern here as a 70-year-old, this 40-year age difference, you're concerned that you should bear the campsite rule in mind, that you shouldn't take advantage of this younger person. My concern listening to your call is that this younger person may be trying to take advantage of you. There are scammers out there online. You have encountered them in the past. And there are scammers on dating sites who are attempting to exploit older people, particularly older men, particularly older men who are very susceptible, as all men are, to dickful thinking. And the bar has to be higher. You have to scrutinize people, I think, a little bit more thoroughly, particularly when there's this kind of an age gap. Yeah, my worry isn't that you're taking advantage of her. My worry listening to your call is that she might be taking advantage of you. If you continue to speak with her, if you initiate conversations about your sexual interests, if she draws you out and convinces you to send her a bunch of videos or masturbate with her online, are you going to be in a blackmail situation? Is she going to threaten to go to your partner with the things that you sent her or told her? Is she going to ask you for money to help her get to Seattle? All those things you know, I wouldn't put the odds at 100%, but they're likelier in this sort of situation. So please interact with her a little bit after you've come. Masturbate and then have a conversation with her. That's when you're most likely to see through a scammer's bullshit or perceive the early warning signs or red flags of a scammer when you are least likely to be engaged in dickful thinking, which is right after you've come. All that set aside, this woman is not in Seattle and is not going to be in Seattle anytime soon. I would encourage you to tell her to give you a shout, drop you a text when she's coming to town, and in the meantime, direct your attentions elsewhere, perhaps to some women who are a little closer to your age and therefore a little less likely to be scamming you or trying to leverage your dickful thinking against your better judgment. Hi, Dan, a 30-year-old woman calling about a friend. She's dating a guy who started out as like kind of her boss. He is much older than her. She's about 29. He is 65 at a low estimate. And uh, I'm just wondering uh, if I have any business saying anything to her about my concerns about the relationship. She's been through some shit lately. She got divorced and uh, I have a feeling that she kind of took up with this older guy 
as a way to get out of the house and not have to deal with her husband during the divorce. But, uh, you know, seems to be kind of sticking with it. The other thing that really worries me is that since she started seeing him, I don't hear from her. She dodges plans. Um, you know, when I run into her in person, she acts friendly like everything's normal and says she wants to hang out. But then when I text her or call her and try to get her to make plans, she won't commit or she won't answer. Yeah, I mean, it just worries me, but I also am worried that I'm just being judgmental. And, you know, maybe she really likes him. Maybe they click. But I don't get it. You know, I just ran into them and I don't know. I just don't get it. Um, so tell me if I'm being a dick or if not, um, you know, how do I talk to her? I'm writing this call right after the previous call to show that, yeah, there are actually some 29, 30-something folks out there who are attracted to people 65 and up for reasons. Your friend, caller in particular, seems to have her reasons. She was in a shitty relationship. She's getting a divorce. She's still living at home with her husband. And this guy, unfortunately her boss, which adds a layer of squick, this guy got her out of the house and was giving her pleasure and making her feel better about herself. And there's no risk here with this 70-something dude of anything long, long, long long-ass term coming from this relationship. And maybe that's why your friend was drawn to this guy. Also, the transgressiveness of it. Maybe she's attracted to older guys. All things that only your friend would know and be able to tell you. So... I promise you that your feelings of discomfort, your friend has picked up on those and she may be dodging you because she fears the conversation that you want to have with her. So I would, if I were in your shoes, send her a text saying, hey, I love you. I miss you. I'd love to get together. Is there a reason why when I run into you in public, we're friendly and we say, let's meet up. But when I ask you to meet up. You can't. If you're afraid I'm going to judge you about the relationship you're in right now, I won't. I just want to hear about your relationship and why this is the right relationship for you at the moment and why this works for you and what's great about this guy if you really like this guy. And I will love and support you in your intergenerational relationship, but you got to let me in so I can do that loving and supporting. But as your friend, if there's a problem here, if you're not enjoying this relationship, if you're being isolated by this guy, those are red flags and I am concerned. But if this guy ain't isolating you, if you're isolating yourself from me for fear of being judged by me, I promise you, I won't judge. I just want to listen. Send her that epic text and I think you'll hear from her. Hey, Dan, Nancy and you, 25-year-old straight cis female from the Sunshine State. In episode 661, you told a caller to be upfront about being a bottom in order to stop being mistaken for a top. My problem is, even though I'm upfront about being submissive in the bedroom, my strong personality often has guys acting less dominant around me. I also find that guys will say during conversation that they're kinky and enjoy being a top, but when it comes to hooking up, they're very vanilla. Dan, what else can I do? I'm already telling them I'm into kink and I'm submissive. Am I just getting hit with a string of liars? Did you get hit with a string of liars? I don't know. You might have gotten hit with a string of guys who told you what they thought you wanted to hear or needed to hear to get into bed with you. I guess that would be a string of liars. You also might have gone to bed with a few guys who enjoy kinky sex, who enjoy being aggressive, who see themselves as tops, who were nervous or lost their nerve. Or as I think good tops are told, they wanted to take it very slowly and move gradually in that direction and not bust out a lot of aggressive moves 
right out of the gate without a lot of negotiation. You say that you identify as kinky. You say you identify as submissive. You say you're seeking out tops. You don't say anything else. What does that mean when you say you're kinky and submissive? What else? That's the beginning of the conversation about your sexual interests. Do you like to have your ass slapped? Do you like to have your hair pulled? Do you like to be tied up? Do you like a hand placed dramatically near your throat? Please no choking. It is dangerous. What do you mean by that? I am submissive. I am kinky. That doesn't actually tell someone everything they might need to know to provide you with the sexual experience that you're longing for. So before you write these guys off as liars, I would urge you to communicate with these guys a bit more. That was fun. The sex was okay. It was kind of a little bit more vanilla than I expected based on our conversation. So I think we need to have a bit more conversation if we're going to hook up again, because these are my expectations. These are the things that turned me on. I thought I was clear about that, but I'm willing to listen to you. And if I wasn't clear about it, let's get clear about it. And then see what happens. If the guy says, oh, I'm actually not into kinky sex, which I think they're unlikely to say, liar. If the guy says, I was nervous, tops are allowed to be nervous. Tops are allowed to be hesitant. You know, when it comes to BDSM, when it comes to kinky sex, we talk about how important it is to establish trust, but not just for the bottom. It's important to establish trust also for the top. Maybe these guys weren't there yet or didn't feel that level of trust with you yet. Not that you had done anything wrong. They just weren't there yet. Maybe they were just feeling tentative and that's what you were picking up on when you two fucked. It wasn't that they were liars. It wasn't that they were vanilla. They were just nervous. Give them a call and maybe, if it feels right, give them another chance. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at-risk youth. I am a 30-something living in the mid-Atlantic. And I just have a quick question on how to handle aging parents. So both of my parents are getting up there in age. My dad is pushing 80. My mom is in her 60s. And both of them, as they've gotten older, have become more and more bitter and jaded. And it's made it very difficult to talk to them. To make things more complicated, my dad has really bought into uh, Fox News and the Trump culture. And, you know, he's becoming more racist by the year. So my question is not how I can change them. That's not going to change. They're, they're, they are who they are, and it's a natural part of aging. My question is, how do I handle it? Because it makes it very hard to be around them. I'm getting up there myself, so I, would, I really hate to think that becoming a racist, bitter, Trump-supporting, Fox News-watching piece of shit is a natural part of aging. That's opt-in shit, and I think it's the result of a lot of older people in our culture and our society isolating themselves or the culture built in such a way as to isolate older people. Older people wind up moving away and wind up in nursing homes or retirement communities surrounded by other old people, don't typically live in diverse areas, diverse neighborhoods. It has been my experience of old people in Seattle, where I have lived for decades, that they're not assholes and racists and Trump-supporting pieces of shit. It is my impression, because I don't spend a lot of time out in the boonies, that more isolated, older people who are surrounded by cows or other older people watch a lot of Fox News and grow more racist and more bitter as they become more isolated. So maybe the way to fight this is cultural and generational and we need to build a culture that doesn't isolate old people from young people. 
maybe then we'll have fewer racist, bitter Trump supporting Fox News watching old people on our hands. But as to the problem of your parents, tell them. Urging a lot of people today to have conversations, sometimes difficult conversations. I understand that difficult conversations are called difficult conversations because they're fucking difficult. But you can say to your parents, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to talk about Trump. I don't want to talk about race. I don't want to listen to you two say racist, bitter shit. And then leave. You can train them like the animals that they are, that we all are. If they start saying this stuff, get up and go. Say, I am done. Give me a call when you guys are in a better mood. Give me a call when you want to talk about something else. If you're talking to them on the phone, you can say, I'm hanging up now, dad, because I don't want to listen to you say those racist, horrible, untrue things about other Americans or about immigrants or about black people or about the squad or whatever else and hang up your phone. Just like the gay kids who come out to their parents as teenagers and they have to bring their parents around. Your only leverage over your parents as an adult is your presence. And if your parents are doing or saying hateful things about you, don't make yourself present. If they're doing or saying hateful things about other people and you are offended on behalf of those other people or it's just unpleasant for you to listen to them go off like this, don't make yourself present. But tell them that's what you're doing. Tell your father, all right, dad, I am on my feet and I am out of this restaurant because I am not going to listen to this. If you want to talk about something else, I will stay and I will sit and we can chat. If you want to talk about this shit, I'm out. Be firm and be consistent. And if they can't knock it the fuck off, spend less time with them, spend less time engaging with them, talk with them less. Make it clear to them that they can have more of their daughter in their lives or they can pop off with racist, bitter Fox News horseshit, but they're going to have to make a choice. Hey, I have a question about being discreet about having multiple lovers when you're staying with your parents. So here's my situation. I live in Chicago. My mother lives in Boston. I am from Boston. Um, I go home to Boston a couple times every year to visit, and I always stay with my mom um, because, well, I usually stay with her because I am super broke and I don't have money for a hotel or even an Airbnb. I have stayed with friends occasionally, but I, I only have one, maybe two friends I could stay with. So I can't stay every time because I would um, outstay my welcome. So I have co connected with a lovely couple in Boston and we have had fun rendezvous the last couple of times I visited Boston. Um, and I have stayed with a friend during that time and that wasn't an issue, but this time I'm going to go home in a couple weeks and I will be staying with my mom again for due to financial constraints. Now, my mom is supportive of my identity as lesbian. She's very on board with that. Um, she's come around to the idea that I am having sex at all. I have a girlfriend uh, of two years, so she's okay with all that. I think she's a little iffy about the sex because <laughs> I'm not married, but um, she's okay with it. And supports my relationship, but she would not at all be okay if she knew I was, we were non-monogamous. And I don't know, I really want to see this couple again, because um, they're very lovely people. I really have a fun time with them. Um, and it's like my little home away from home that I can go to when I'm visiting. I still have some beautiful lovers there waiting for me. Um, so what can I do? Staying overnight seems tricky without lying and not staying overnight. 
I could just go and hang out and say I'm hanging out with friends. And it's possible. Uh, but my mom is a bit of a helicopter mother. So I'm just afraid of not being able to lie enough to cover it up. Stay overnight and lie. Run your parents on a need-to-know basis. You can come close to the truth. You can even introduce your mother to this lovely couple that you've befriended in Boston and let your mother know that, you know, every once in a while you crash at their place. You'd like to go see the movies and maybe have a drink and then they have a guest room and you're going to stay there because you don't want to drive home. You don't want to have to traverse the city or maybe you want to give mom a break. You can tell mom anything. You don't have to tell mom you're fucking this couple. You can allow your mother to assume what you allow probably your neighbors to assume or your coworkers to assume that you are monogamous. That's the default assumption, social monogamy, they call it, socially monogamous. You are not sexually monogamous. Your lovers need to know that. Your friends need to know that. Some people are out about being sexually non-monogamous, even if they are socially monogamous, even if they're pair bonded with one person, they're completely out. But most people, particularly most straight people, aren't. And you aren't obligated to be. I think it would be better if everyone who was sexually non-monogamous was open about it, open about it myself. But parents are judgy and people are shitty and there are no anti-discrimination protections in place for people who have open or poly relationships. And it can be a risk. So not everybody who can be is. So not everybody who would even want to be can be. But we're talking here about your mother and your mother doesn't need to know the details of your sex life. Tell your mom you're staying at friends. You could even introduce your mom again to these friends and come close to telling the truth. So long as your friends don't start pawing at you or making out with you in front of your mother, your mother is not going to leap to the assumption that you're fucking these people. Stay overnight and don't think of it as lying to your mother. As my mom, Judy Savage, liked to say to me frequently, there are things a mother has a right not to know. This, for your mother, is definitely one of those things. This episode is a milestone episode for us, episode 666. And the Satanic Temple, they recently hit a milestone as of last month. They are a tax-exempt church. Same tax exemption the Baptists, the Catholics, the Mormons, the Scientologists get. Joining me to talk about the Satanic Temple on the occasion of our 666th episode of the Savage Lovecast, Lucian Greaves, co-founder and spokesperson for the Satanic Temple. Hey, Lucian, how are you? Great. Honor to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on, and congratulations on that tax-exempt status. You guys are officially a church now. Yeah, I still haven't figured out all that that uh, confers upon us, but it's certainly going to help us move forward with our litigation a lot easier. So for listeners who aren't familiar with the Satanic Temple and all of your good works, can you give us the quick rundown? Yeah, I think what people see from us, uh, well, obviously what people see from us is, is our public-facing campaigns, which are to ensure that pluralism is being respected wherever religious expression is being allowed in the public forum. We've seen a real growing evangelical theocratic movement trying to break down the wall of separation between church and state, and they've been really successful in lowering that wall. And part of what they're doing is insisting on allowing for religious expression on public grounds under the assumption that they're the only ones who are going to take advantage of these new rules or these new exceptions that are being, that are being put into place. Well, then the Satanic Temple comes in and says, you know, we're also a religious identification with deeply held beliefs, and we have just as much right to 
equal access and then all hell breaks loose. And oftentimes what we see is that these public forums are shut down altogether, which is one positive byproduct. At least it, uh, it, it keeps us away from the worst case scenario in which one viewpoint seems to have co-opted power and the authority of the government. But it also kind of, I guess, teaches people that we, we are a pluralistic and diverse nation. Right. And it is a push for secularism more than it's a push for Satanism. But it's so in your face and it's so smart and it's such, you know, I, I wouldn't attach this word to you in an insulting way, but it's such sort of deft and expert trolling. A little bit like, you know, and, I, and game respects game, a little bit like we did to Santorum uh, and, and other politicians. It's just you know, hitting them right in their weak spot. And, and your achievements are around emphasizing the importance of, of secularism. And if there's going to be an allowance for, you know, religious expression on publicly owned property, the, the fig leaf there, the government's fig leaf is, well, the government can't distinguish between religions, can't discriminate between religions, but we should allow for all religious expression to flourish. But of course, the evangelicals and theocrats who push these carve outs, uh, you know, want to erect Ten Commandment monuments and public courthouses, want to get prayer back into schools. They think they're the only ones who are going to be allowed right. back in. Right. And when you see me on Fox News, and I actually do recommend looking up both of my interviews with Tucker Carlson, um, what really makes their heads explode is when I can credibly use the rhetoric they're so used to using and claiming as their own, I can use the language of free speech, free expression, and religious liberty in a way that's much less, less disingenuous than their usage of it, when obviously they're only speaking of advancing one viewpoint. And it's really caused a great deal of cognitive dissonance. And I think this, this more than anything could drive a wedge through the various unrealized factions on the right. If cognitive dissonance caused cancer, <laughs> uh, your Tucker Carlson interviews would have killed him. Tell people. <laughs> right. uh, I think they almost did. There's the, the statue of Baphomet. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yes. That, that may be the action you're best known for. Places where people want to put, you know, giant marble monuments up to the Ten Commandments. You guys come in with this statue of Baphomet. Who is Baphomet and what's the statue about? Well, Baphomet, there's, there's actually a real history to this, and, and I think that's uh, part of the uh, what's unexpected about the Satanic Temple. I, a lot of people come in and see us as, as these trolls that haven't may, maybe, you know, achieved this real philosophical depth to, uh, to argue our point. But what they find is that that's not the case. <laughs> in the Baphomet image, this half-goat, half-human image, is this kind of Satanized image that came from a 19th century occult historian drawing and had kind of been co-opted into this idea of, of Satanism, part of the Satanic imagery. And we had all these kind of binary elements in there. You know, there, there was a pentagram with the, the star inverted, and then in the background, there's the pentacle with the star pointing up. The, the image points upward, it points downward. It's part animal, part human. There's a male and female child at each side. And all these kind of binary elements were supposed to kind of symbolize a reconciliation of opposites. And also to have it fall in line with these arguments that were being used to put a Ten Commandments monument on public grounds, we wanted it to somehow speak to the codification of law in the United States. So we said that this kind of paid homage to the unjustly accused, the witch hunted, and these, these kinds of uh, these kinds of wrongs that were righted by a secular legal system that believes in 
the burden of proof, innocence and the presumption of innocence, that type of thing. And we thought that spoke more strongly to the codification of American law than the Ten Commandments monument. So we felt we answered all of the uh, all of the claims being made by the Ten Commandments monument to make it legitimate to put it on the public grounds as a private donation and more. I, I thought our, our argument was actually better than theirs. Mm-hmm. And what we found is that, you know, even though they claim that they've opened up capital grounds for private donations and being that they're private donations, this isn't an establishment clause issue because it's not state endorsed, you know, ostensibly then they've opened up the public grounds to any private donation. They can't discriminate upon basis of viewpoint, but that's exactly what they've done. In Oklahoma, they just opted to take down the Ten Commandments monument. Fine. They couldn't share the grounds. That's what they get. In Arkansas, they just flat out rejected us, and they were very open about the fact that they only did it because of our religious viewpoint. And I feel certain that we will win that lawsuit, and probably sooner rather than later, because we're going to file for summary judgment. And you are going to win that lawsuit. Now, how does a nice boy from Michigan and a Harvard grad grow up to co-found the Satanic Temple and found a religion? Uh, You know, that really wasn't something I had envisioned for myself, but I... um, I don't take any of these issues lightly. I, I know a lot of people look at what we do and they, they see a good deal of humor in it and they get a laugh. And I think that's great. I feel like I've really done my job when people see this and they see it as a lot of fun. I think that's what it should be to a lot of people. But I felt like I was committing suicide when I put my face out there as, as the front of this organization. You must get death threats. Oh, yeah, yeah, all the, all the time. But um, I, I, I don't, don't take it lightly at all, and I don't think I'm speaking hysterically at all when I say there's a rising theocratic movement in the United States, and they've made major headway, and they stand to redefine what it means to live in, in the world as a citizen. And they, they've, make, they've made great strides, and they take forward in trying to redefine people who don't believe as, as they do, who aren't unified under a, a single religious banner as second-class citizens, and at the point where you even start allowing uh, unique privilege for any one religious viewpoint, Mm -hmm. you've gone down that path, and we have started down that path. And I think uh, the things the Satanic Temple are doing, as funny as they may appear on the surface, they're going to reverberate for generations to come, and the outcomes of these battles we're fighting are of primary importance. I don't think there's any conflict between the seriousness of an issue and the humor that activists may bring to a demonstration. I remember, you know, HIV AIDS, the AIDS oh, crisis, yeah, the height of the AIDS epidemic. There was a demo where they rolled a condom over Jesse Helms, who was a right-wing conservative racist, anti-gay senator from North Carolina. They put a condom over his entire house. They built a condom right. and lowered it over his house to make the point that Jesse Helms was unsafe uh, for, for Americans, right. for gay Americans, for Americans with HIV, for people of color. And it was hilarious, but it was a deadly serious point that was being made, and it really made people think and got people's attention. And you can't, in some ways, get people to think about issues, A, if you don't get their attention. And often it helps to make them laugh, even if it's a deadly serious yeah, issue. Yeah, right. No, I'm glad you understand that, because we often get people asking us, well, are you an authentic religious movement? Are you kind of a trolls? Are you political? Are you a prank? All these things. And I say, I don't see any of these as mutually exclusive. I think we can be all of these things at once, and we have to be, and we are. And, you know, if we can have any bit of fun while we're doing this, we, we, really, we really have to, or, uh, or, or we'll be devoured by our own stress. 
Well, I admire everything you guys are doing to remind Americans every day about the importance of secularism, uh, the anti-establishment clause, and the government's inability constitutionally, at least at the moment, to discriminate uh, between religions despite the best efforts of douchebags like Tony Perkins and Rick Santorum and others to make their religion the national religion and impose their religious beliefs on all of us. Uh, one of the things that we like to do for fun when we have guests on is just toss them a savage love question, a caller question, and answer that question with them. Can we keep you on the line for one of those? Absolutely. Hi, Dan. I am a 28-year-old female. I've recently had a couple friends got married within the past couple years, and you wanted wedding questions. I was in multiple weddings and it overall it costs, you know, around a thousand dollars for the bachelorette party and for the shower and for the dress and just for all of these wedding things, about a thousand dollars for each of these two weddings for these close friends um, whose weddings I was in. I find it to be a little bit ridiculous that I think weddings are essentially big parties. Like I know that they're to celebrate love, but it's like, you're throwing a big party and to expect someone then to buy you a gift in addition to all this other wedding shit that you do to me just seems like really excessive and entitled. And like these friends had their parents pay for their wedding. So like to ask like your mid twenties friends to just like basically pay a hundred bucks to go to a party for you seems a little absurd to me. I don't know. It's been like a year or two years since they got married, but am I being an asshole? I never gave a, a gift to either of them. And then sometimes I just feel really weird and awkward about it. And I feel like, I don't know, I just feel weird about it. What do you think, Dan? So how guilty should she feel? She goes to the wedding, spends a lot of money to be there, doesn't send a gift. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm probably the wrong person to ask about that. I'd feel perfectly comfortable just going on whatever terms I'm, I'm available to go on. So <laughs> I... I I think uh, that's implicit in the invitation anyways. I don't think anybody's supposed to put themselves into debt or shouldn't be expected to. Mm -hmm. And if they are and somebody takes offense, well, then that's, that's their problem, isn't it? I think so. But, you know, implicit in the, the wedding invitation is the, you know, we invite you, you bring us a gift. And I feel maybe I'm old fashioned, maybe this I'm channeling my mom here, that if you can't afford to go and bring a gift, you should not go and send a gift. Well, I mean, a gift it can have sentimental value and not uh, be of high monetary value, right? Maybe it's something you've made. Maybe it's something important. Uh, you know, I, I don't think it necessarily needs to uh, uh, be distinguished in value by how much somebody spent on it in any case. Oh, I, I completely agree there. But I do think a wedding invitation is kind of a, understood to be a commodified exchange. And if you are the gift, I think then you make that clear, like, ah, I can come, but that's all I can do, but I'll help out at the wedding. You can do a little volunteer work or clean up work or help with logistically. I, I, I don't know. Uh, it's not something I have to confront very often. Um, don't get a lot of wedding invitations, been to a bunch of gay weddings. Um, but all of this, like bridesmaids, bridesmaids, dresses, bachelorette parties, all of these uh, attenuated expenses that straight people heap up on themselves when they're going to have a wedding. This doesn't happen <laughs> in gay land. Well, I guess you have to expect at least. I mean, I, I think we're taking making some assumptions here and we're going to have to assume that we're uh, we're not looking at somebody who's prone to getting married three months later again. True. Does the Satanic Temple officiate <laughs> marriages, marriage ceremonies, now that you're a church? Can you do that? Yeah, yeah, we, we can do that. Uh, in fact, there's a, there's a real demand for that now. And I, I think uh, 
you know, we're, we're really getting our ordination process in, into place. And I think, I think satanic weddings are going to start becoming a lot more, a lot more common. And no gifts required at a satanic wedding. Your presence is the only gift required. Right. Well, one of the early things we wanted to do before the Supreme Court uh, allowed for, you know, said that uh, gay marriage was a constitutional right uh, across, across the board, where some states still had it illegal. So what we wanted to do was kind of test religious liberty laws and perform a gay marriage where it wasn't legal and then sue the state demanding that they recognize it on religious liberty grounds. And I still regret we weren't able to test that out well, you might in be some able place to, like Alabama. You might be able to test that out in the future if Donald Trump's Supreme Court overturns Obergefell, which I think is a real possibility. So the Satanic Temple is the subject of a, a new documentary just premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. Yep, that's correct. Did very well there. The screenings were all sold out. We did about seven screenings in, in Sundance. I think it was a, the, the biggest crowd favorite in any case. It's going to bring a lot more attention to you guys than a Tucker Carlson interview might. <laughs> yeah, it, it already has. It's, it's caused for a lot more visitors at our headquarters in Salem, and I've gotten a lot more, uh, lot more messages. I'm not sure they've increased in, uh, in quality, but they've certainly increased in quantity. And I, I haven't had a chance to see the film yet. Does it focus on the activism? Does it focus on the the ideology, the founding? What's the, 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 the focus of the documentary? Well, we had been approached by a lot of people who wanted to make documentaries about us, and I had turned them all down because uh, none of them really had the depth of understanding about the Satanic Temple as the director who we ultimately approved, which was Penny Lane. She's this great, very talented director. She constructs these great narratives out of her topics in a way that you don't realize how much you're learning in the course of what you're watching because she makes it so easily digestible. And it focuses, I think, on all the kind of nuanced elements of the Satanic Temple. It kind of starts out showing you, I think, what your assumptions are about the Satanic Temple. It shows kind of the, the media stories about these uh, clever pranks being pulled, or at least that's how people see them. And then she kind of brings you in on the inside and shows you just how uh, deeply meaningful this is to our community at large. And I think it's a, it's a very, it's a very well thought film. It's a great introduction to everything we're doing. And uh, uh, from what I've seen of people who who've watched it, they they really appreciate it and find it entertaining. And the name of the film is Hail Satan, but Hail Satan with a question mark. Uh, we don't know what streaming platform it's going to land on yet, but it will definitely find its way to one of the streaming platforms soon. Yeah, it'll definitely be streaming. I'm not sure when yet or, or where, but uh, be on the lookout. Where can folks who are interested, there, there are Satanic Temple chapters all over the country. Your Vatican is in Salem, Massachusetts. That's correct. If yeah. people want to find you online or they want to find a local chapter, where can they go? Just go to thesatanictemple.com and you'll see everything you need to know about us there. Lucian Greaves, co-founder and spokesperson for the Satanic Temple. Thank you so much for joining us on episode 666 of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you so much. Anytime. Hey, Dan. I'm a straight cis woman in my mid-30s living on the West Coast. I am just out of nearly a decade of being in long-term relationships. And being single like this for the first time in a while has me feeling like I should pursue fulfilling some of my sexual fantasies. One thing I've always wanted to do is be in an MMF threesome with two bisexual guys. The problem is, I don't know where to find these men. Um, Now that Craigslist Personals is no longer a thing, 
is Tinder my only option? Um, I live in kind of a small community and I would rather not air my explicit sexual desires online for people who know me to possibly find out. Also, I generally need to have not only a level of physical attraction to the people that I want to fuck, but some level of emotional investment, as in I'd like to feel like these are people I'd like to hang out with, even if we weren't fucking, and that they're generally good human beings that I would care about, um, regardless of any sexual involvement. So what do you suggest? Is Tinder my only option? How else should I go about finding these bisexual dudes that might want to have a threesome with me? There are bisexual guys on dating apps and you can search for them, particularly on apps like OkCupid. Tinder isn't your only option. Another option you might want to consider is Field, F-E-E-L-D. It is a dating app for singles and couples, for people interested in swinging, open relationships, some kink, and you might find some opportunities there. You're still going to have to put yourself out there in public, though, on a dating app. And some people in your small town, small minded community might spot you. And that's just a risk you're going to have to run. You could say on a dating app, open to dating bisexual guys or bisexual guys to the front of the line. You say you want to have an emotional connection to somebody. You want to feel like this guy that you're having an MMF three-way with, or these guys you're having an MMF three-way with, are people you connect with emotionally. So why not just consider dating by guys and then this MMF three-way situation instead of being a one-off fantasy that you have fulfilled by two bisexual space aliens who zoom down to Earth and then blast off after you're done never to be seen again. Why not date a bi guy? There are tons of bi guys out there and there are lots of guys on dating apps who identify themselves as straight because they've faced rejection from women. A lot of heteroromantic bi guys are afraid to be out about being bi because they feel like it makes them less marketable. And that's not an irrational feeling on their part. Bi guys who are out and open about it face a lot of rejection. So some aren't out and open about it. And that creates a lot of stress in bi guys' lives because it sucks to live in the closet. And there you are. A straight woman, a single straight woman, whose ultimate fantasy is to have an emotional connection with a bi guy or a couple of bi guys that you can have three ways with. Well, date a bi guy. Find a bi guy that you can connect with emotionally and that you could see yourself dating and then date that bi guy. And MMF three ways can be a regular part of your sex life with your Partner, And of course, if you find a bi guy that you want to date or make a connection with, you're not obligated to stay with that bi guy eternally. But I think you should be open to dating a bi guy. You're talking about bi guys as if you're only interested in being with a bi guy for this one-off, scratch-that-itch, three-way. And what you should be doing is thinking about putting yourself out there subtly on OkCupid or Tinder or not so subtly on an app like Field and searching for bi guys to date, seeking them out, not to fulfill a fantasy or not just to fulfill a fantasy, but to partner with. Hi, Dan. I'm a 29-year-old woman living in Los Angeles, and I'm recently married, very happy with my husband in terms of emotional support and companionship. But our sex life is a bit of a struggle, mostly because I am the more sexual one in the relationship. 
I've always been very sexual and I'm really proud of my sexual confidence that I've gained over the course of 29 years. But with him, I feel that the unequal sexual energy is harming our relationship and I don't really know how to deal with it. We do have sex once or twice a week, but I find that I want it a little bit more and I really don't know how to communicate that to him. I think it's just hard being the woman with a higher sex drive because I grew up with the media telling me that men always wanted it more than women, but I find that I'm that person in the relationship. And I guess I feel that I don't have a lot of options when I want to be sexual and he doesn't. And certainly I can please myself, but sometimes I just want him to give more but without feeling like I'm imposing. So I just want some advice as the woman who's more sexual in the relationship, wanting monogamy, what are my options? How do I deal with this? And are there any resources that talk about women being the more sexual ones? How long have you been with your husband? I've been with him for almost two years. And was the libido mismatch a problem the entire time? I don't really know because we met and fell in love at Burning Man and (laughs) it was love at first kiss. So it's tough to say, but generally I have always had a really high libido. And he's a once a week guy and perfectly content. Yes, but I do think that what I'm really trying to get at is my high libido impacts his libido because I think at a deep evolutionary level men appreciate the hunt but if the if if I'm right there ready to go at all times I think that impacts desire yeah that's again just my hypothesis desire is about wanting what you don't have exactly and And there you are I'm you know here on the bed ready to go at any moment I think that maybe paints a little bit of the mystery that needs to remain. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, but you can't cut him too much slack for that. If, if he is aware of that, if he knows this about himself, that once he's with somebody and it's a committed relationship, he's much less interested in sex with that person, then he shouldn't be making monogamous commitments or he should be finding somebody, intentionally finding somebody, you know, as for his partner who has a similar libido. It doesn't get him off the hook right. for you to say, you know, men like the hunt and women like the hunt too, but men like the hunt and he's got me so he doesn't have to earn me and so it's less arousing the prospect of having sex with me. Okay, if all those things are true, why did he marry you and why did you marry him? Right. Because there is an engine of conflict now at the center of your relationship. Sex is important. Sex is – and sexual compatibility is critically important in a sexually exclusive relationship. Yes. And if committing means he doesn't want to fuck you and you need to be fucked, well, you've got a problem that's only going to get worse over time. I guess where I'm at is what's been communicated to me is that maybe I have my own set of reasons why sex is important to me. Mm-hmm. And maybe I need to get to the bottom of that and address the root causes. Wait, but, uh, uh, no but danger. I know, but another part of me just thinks that I'm a, you know, I'm a, Really, I'm 29 years old. I'm a sexual creature enjoying my 20s, and, and this is just how I'm made. He's sexual. Or how you. I am right He's now. He's pathologizing your libido. Yeah. That's a problem. He's trying to get out of sex with you by saying, you need to really think about why you want to have sex so much because 
that there's something at the the, the root there. That right, maybe I didn't get enough physical, you know, physical touch from my father, who was very hands off, or maybe it has to do with just desiring physical intimacy as a source of comfort. Yeah, blah 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 blah. Humans want to have sex by and large, and for the most part, there are asexual <laughs> and gray sexual people out there. They exist. That's for real. That's a sexual orientation. But the overwhelming majority of human beings are wired to wanna. And you can look at somebody who's horny and has a libido that's set a little higher than yours. And it's always looking at people whose libidos are set a little higher and thinking, well, what is wrong with them? Right. Because they want to have that sex thing that's so disgusting and dirty. And it's about sex negativity. It's about sex shame. Yeah, you need to solve this. I I hope you're not pregnant or planning to get pregnant anytime soon because this is a problem that you're (laughs) going to want to solve before you scramble your DNA together and you can't walk away. As easily. It's very true. I know. And the other thing I'm, I really want to ask you is I've heard a lot growing up about, you know, men wanting it and women having to be convinced, but it doesn't seem like there's a lot of conversation happening about the fact that many women, many of my friends, we're all feeling like we're the more sexual one as the woman in the relationship. And it's a hard place to navigate because it's almost like we feel like something's wrong with us. Right. That's slut shaming and sex shaming uh, and the way women are socialized, the way men are socialized, and it puts a zap on your head. And then women who have a normal libido and a healthy interest in sex sit around wondering what the hell is wrong with them. And sometimes their male partners reinforce that belief. And it sounds like your male partner is doing that. He's treating you like your interest in sex. It must be about something else. You were dropped on your head or you were neglected or you were (laughs) dot, 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 something darker. And it's just that you want to fuck your husband who you've only known for a couple of years. Exactly. And you're fucking horny. And and so what are the workarounds here? Well, the workaround are non-monogamy. You guys went to Burning Man. You've met non-monogamous people. You probably slept in the same tent with non-monogamous people. (laughs) There's non-monogamy. They're letting you fuck other people. But that means stopping the pathologizing of your desire for sex and allowing you to have more sex in your life without requiring him to have more sex than he would like to have himself. Yeah. Instead of shaming you in an effort to control you and shut you down and bring you down to his libido level or just to dismantle you erotically and sexually for sadistic shits and giggles. I'm really concerned about the relationship you're in. That said, there are people (laughs) in relationships that that manage to make it work where one person has a higher libido than the other and they find compromises, which is not usually the person with the lower libido has a lot more sex than they want. It's often the person with a higher libido has a little less sex than they want, but the lower libido yeah. person allows their partner to masturbate, allows them to watch pornography without shaming them, and sometimes provides what I like to call the masturbatory assist, Right. which is where you, know, you want to get off, you want some feeling of intimacy and connection. He's not feeling horny and doesn't want to disappoint you if he can't get it up, and so you just you know, he lays down in bed naked and you lay between his legs and he holds you while you use a vibrator on yourself. And maybe he whispers a few dirty things in your ear and he helps you masturbate. And you have this, not mutual masturbation because he's not masturbating. You're not masturbating him back, but you have this masturbatory session where he plays a role. And the trick is if you're the person being indulged in this way, don't drag it out for two hours and don't try to upgrade to sex during it because (laughs) that's going to disincentivize the lower libido partner like giving you the masturbatory assist. If every time they do that, they end up you know, being put in a position to have to reject you and feel terrible again for not being able to meet your needs, then they're not going to want to do that. 
You will find, however, if you don't try to upgrade yourself, the higher libido partner in that circumstance, don't try to upgrade. Sometimes your lower libido partner will catch a groove and suddenly what had been a masturbatory assist session will become full sex at the instigation of the lower libido partner. The other thing, though, that I want to ask is um, what's the difference between a man that is really excited and satisfied by giving and being generous as the giver, not the receiver, and the man that just says, do it yourself. I mean, have you noticed or observed any differences? Like, what is the difference between that person? Because that's also what I'm looking for is, you know, I don't need anything crazy, but I just want to feel like he's excited to give even when he doesn't need to receive. Is he not excited to get you off? I mean, he's really, really great at sex, but he doesn't he never really learned how to give good oral. And so I think it's more of a challenge for him. And maybe he's embarrassed that he doesn't you know fully what he's doing there. You've got to stop making excuses for this man. Yeah. But I've been with people in the past where that's almost as fulfilling sometimes just to give. I'm just wondering, you know, what the difference is between that person and the person who's just a little bit hesitant. One would be a good sex partner and good husband and one wouldn't be. Yes. And it sounds like you married the one who wouldn't be. I feel like I got myself in a little bit of a trap because me being perceived as the higher libido partner certainly doesn't help the dynamic. Mm -hmm. But now I'm just stuck in this position, in this role, and it almost makes him feel trapped because then he feels like he can't be his authentic sexual self because he just knows that I'm always down. I don't want to be in this role either because now I feel like it's almost like an expected where, you know, he's assuming that I always want it. So I can't just kind of experience the buildup of, of wanting it separate from what he thinks I am. How hard would it be to leave him? Hard. I mean, this is the only thing that of course it's important to me that I struggle with. Other than that, he's, he's my dream partner. We're, we're very happy together in, in all other forms of life. Right. Other than the sex, Mrs. Lincoln, how is the play? Right. Yes. It, other than the sex, we're, we're completely compatible and happy. Right. And, and you're two years in and other than the sex is already a problem. And I'm here from the future to tell you that this is a problem that gets worse over time. It's always going to be a thought. I know. It's always, and, and I think that I have that hyper consciousness where I'm like, I'm 29 now and I care about this. Right. So I can only imagine with children when I'm, you know, 40 in a different body that this is still going to be frustrating. Right. And so what you need to do is throw down now. This is something we have to fix and solve now. We have to figure out how to make our sex life work for both of us and be joyful for both of us because we have backed into a position where I feel shamed. You're not aroused at the prospect of having sex with me. I don't feel like you're invested in my pleasure. You're not giving of pleasure in a way that I deserve to be given pleasure And this, if we wait, if we don't address this now, if we don't fix this now, we will be completely miserable, resentful, frustrated, and headed for divorce in five or 10 years. Because this is a cancer that grows and kills relationships. And people do this thing where they're like, everything is so great except for the sex. And we can't. Yeah. You can't say that you know it's enough to leave someone because the sex is lousy, even in a sexually exclusive relationship, because then that's putting too much importance on sex, giving sex too much weight. And mm-hmm. yet, it's a sexually exclusive relationship. That puts a lot of weight on sex. He's the only person that you can turn to to get these needs met. 
And yep. if he is and sex is really important to me, and it always has been. Right, so and so if it, he is incapable is, is of a- meeting your needs sexually, if you guys aren't a good match sexually, if you're not sexually compatible in enough ways you know, for a long-ass term relationship, for there to be a foundation that you can build upon going forward, you guys aren't even speaking the same language. Yeah. And he's sectioning you, you, and yes. he's so far in your head, and you've been socialized as a woman to such an extent so successfully that you are constructing excuses for him. When he's not in the room. He also says he feels shamed for not being as sexual as I am. So he has his own set of as shame. But I guess what I'm also wondering is, do you, should you think of it as a practice? Like a, pra- like a practice just like meditation and yoga where you have to commit to it and you have to do it regularly for you to feel changes? Or how should I think about this or even communicate this so it doesn't feel like it's a headache? I wouldn't call it a practice. Like I want to get yoga woo-woo about it. I think colloquialisms I'm more comfortable with, like you guys have to catch a groove. You guys have to carve a groove into each other that works. So you're both happy so that you don't feel deprived and that you don't feel like he isn't invested in your pleasure and that he doesn't feel pressured or inadequate. Yeah. And there may be some compromise you both have to do to get to that place where you feel content and he doesn't feel inadequate or under pressure and that means mutual masturbatory assist. Maybe that means an open relationship. He's not interested in that. And neither am I, I think, okay. because I've done that before. Yeah, but you, I, I'm sorry. Maybe I'm being cynical it. and bitter and awful today, but just I feel like <laughs> I'm going to get a call from you or, or I have 14 other calls all lined up waiting to go from women who are basically you and you're not the only yeah. high libido woman with a low libido man out there who are miserable because they stayed in the relationship. Right. And now extricating themselves from the relationship is hard. And I, I kind of want to, you know, jump in a time machine with you and be at Burning Man. Actually, I don't want to be at Burning Man. I never want to be at Burning Man, <laughs> but jump in a time machine with you and be at Burning Man and like suss out this relationship or just talk with you about sex and how important sex is for you and tell you, you have a right to prioritize sexual compatibility you owe it to yeah. yourself to prioritize sexual compatibility in a long-term committed monogamous sexually exclusive relationship. It is crucial. And yet so many people have it in their heads that if they prioritize sexual compatibility, that they're dirty birds, that they're right. skeezy weirdos who think too much about sex when they should be thinking about, we both like the same kind of music. We both want kids and practice the same woo woo faith. We both, you know, we get along so well, we're best friends. All those things are important in a friendship. Yep. I mean, this is what you get when you fall in love with a place at a place where there's no time, no money, no and, sense of reality. And so and much ecstasy. Reality. <laughs> yeah. and so much MDMA. Exactly. Exactly. So once that love bubble pops, you have to figure out how you're going to make it work. And this is certainly something that I feel like I'm even being conditioned by him to think it doesn't really matter. Like life is about so many other things, which it fucking matters. It's true for him, but yeah, it matters. It fucking and matters. It, it, it continues to matter, especially it, when children and other things come in the mix where yep. you need the sex more than ever. And he can't win this by shutting you down sexually, right. by shaming you, by convincing you to take his side in the argument, even when you're talking with an outside third party who isn't involved because that's just bottling you up and eventually it's going to explode and yeah. you're going to cheat or you're going to leave. And the longer you wait to cheat or leave, the more damage will be done. Yep. Good luck. 
Thank you so much, Dan. Really appreciate it. Bye. Hi, Dan. This is a 30-year-old gay male from New York City. I had a question for you about sexual compatibility. My current partner and I have zero (laughs) sexual compatibility, but we have this amazing, intense emotional uh, compatibility with each other. And, you know, my uh, instinct has been to leave the relationship because if I'm not being fulfilled sexually, he's not being fulfilled sexually, then aren't we just friends? But then I wonder, is that just my version of what a relationship should look like? Does it need to include sexual compatibility? Is there a conversation I should be having about ways we can see sexual compatibility outside of the relationship? I mean, I never really saw myself in an open relationship, but you know, I'm just wondering if I'm holding on to what, what might just be a really, really good friend versus, um, no, that person, if you have this emotional connection, is the right person for you. Maybe sexually it's not working out. I've known a lot of straight couples, and I've known a lot of gay couples, and I've spoken with and emailed back and forth with a lot of straight couples and gay couples over the years. And one of my observations has been that gay couples who are in companionate relationships, gay couples who don't have sex with each other, have sex with other people, seek sexual fulfillment outside the relationship, but have a great emotional connection, they're more likely to be kind of, I don't want to say brutally honest because it's not about battering each other, beating each other up emotionally. They're just often, I think, able to be honest about this. You see, I've seen more companionate, functional, healthy relationships in gay land where the relationship itself may be sexless and that these two people are having sex with each other, but these individuals don't lead sexless lives and they don't have to hide that from each other. That They find emotional fulfillment, partnership, intimacy, uh, even romance with each other and they have a powerful connection that's bigger than friendship, that's not just best friends. It's something deeper and more transcendent, but they don't have sex. They don't have a sexual connection. Maybe they had a sexual connection at first and kind of burned through it or they grew apart sexually or maybe they never did. And they're honest with each other about it and they're honest with their friends about it and they're out about it. It's been my experience in straight land talking to straight people that these relationships are not unheard of, but they're usually not as easily acknowledged. And sometimes the seeking sexual fulfillment outside the relationship is on the DL, on the down low for both partners. And they find it difficult to talk with each other about this honestly. But, you know, you can't be a gay person until you've had a difficult conversation about who you are sexually, often with people that are scary, who have power over you, parents, teachers, preachers, friends. You come out, you start telling these difficult truths about who you are sexually when you're vulnerable. And that makes it easier as a grown-up to continue to tell difficult truths, particularly to people who don't have power over you in the same way, that you aren't vulnerable in front of in the same way. All that said, that's just a long way of me saying, yeah, this can work, but it only works if it's okay for both of you. If you can see having an intimate, romantic partnership with this person while seeking sex outside the relationship and imagine being happy in that relationship. Well, it's only going to work if he can see the same things and imagine being happy in the same way. You have to be on the same page. This kind of relationship doesn't work unilaterally when only one person is happy in the sexless relationship, but not the sexless life. You both have to be on the same page. So this is ultimately a conversation, a brutally honest conversation that you're going to need to have with this guy, this guy that you're dating and not this guy, this guy with the Sex and Relationship Advice podcast.
All right, before we get to your response call, let's read some of your tweets. The fourth Foster tweets, you know, people use the term dodging a bullet when it comes to getting out of a relationship. Hey, Dan Savage, could it also be sometimes that you get shot and now you're finally having the bullet removed? Hashtag Savage Lovecast. Yes, you could see it that way. Stu Watkins tweets, I work in EMS, not in the U.S., and I got a call at a BDSM play place. I've never been to one personally or professionally, so I was surprised at first. If I wasn't a Savage Lovecast listener, I wouldn't have been able to appropriately educate my coworkers. Thank you, Dan Savage. Thank you, Stu, for writing in, and thank you for doing what you do. And finally, Diana Edelman tweets, the only podcast that uses the words Twitterfication and Baroque in the same episode. And today, Risible. I love Dan Savage. I love you too, Diana. I do use all of those words, and sometimes I even manage to pronounce them all correctly. And now your response calls. Hey, Dan, I'm calling about the woman in the most recent episode who was getting triggered into like a panic attack because she and her husband were trying some um, bondage. And I wanted to say that they maybe need to just start slow. You know, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. He can tie just one hand behind her back or maybe just tie her feet together and leave her hands free and kind of go slow and work up to, you know, times where she really can't move or free herself. And the other thing, and I'm so surprised you didn't say this because I've heard you say it to so many people, is instead of using rope or sheets or whatever else they have around, they should maybe invest in some cuffs because those, once you're in them, they come off in a click instead of having to untie. And if she's panicking, it might be a lot more safe. Go slow and just make it playful and fun. He could even tell her to not move her hands and not tie them. And it could be like a mental bondage game. And then she doesn't even have to have anything that she can't get out of. She just has to be willing to do it. That sounds like it could also be fun. Hi, I'm calling about the caller in episode 665 who was experiencing like some claustrophobia um, and exploring bondage play with her partner. One thing that might be fun for her to try is you can actually pretend perhaps that he's like hypnotizing you and maybe he's hypnotically suggesting you to tie yourself up or only like asking you to pretend that you are um, bound when you're not actually bound. So you could engage in something like that without needing to be bound or by binding yourself, which you might be more comfortable with. And it can be kind of sexy and fun and pretend. Hi, Dan. Since you know your Bible pretty well, this might not be news for you. But in preparation for your 666 show, I wanted to make sure that you knew that biblical scholars agree that 666 is not actually the number of the devil. It's mentioned in the book of Revelation, which any intelligent person reads contextually and not literally. There's mention of a number of beasts throughout the book. The beasts are really like political cartoons. Some of them are predatory, and that's meant to represent the Romans' military conquest. Anyway, at one point, the author says that the number of the beast is 666. People who read the Bible literally see that and think, oh, it's the devil. But there was an ancient practice called gematria. And what they did was they equated letters with numerical values. And it was like a riddle to be able to speak in code. The letters for Nero Caesar added up to 666. It was a way of talking about the corrupt leaders of the day in secret. So maybe 2,000 years from now, if there still is a civilization, people will find your ITMFA merch and think that it symbolizes the devil. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206 302 
1-800-242-2064. The deadline is right around the corner to submit your film for my Dirty Little Film Festival Hump. You have a chance to win a part of $20,000 in cash prizes if your film makes it into the festival and a cut of every single ticket sold on the Hump Tour if your film goes out on tour with the festivals. Your films that you submit to Hump can be hardcore, softcore, live action, animated, kinky, vanilla, gay, lesbian, trans, straight, all sexual expressions and gender identities are welcome at Hump. The deadline to submit is September 13th. Go to humpfilmfest.com to find out more. Follow Lucian Greaves on Twitter, at Lucian Greaves, and check out Hail Satan, which is now streaming. Follow Carrie Wade Gervin on Twitter, at Carrie Gervin, and you can find her piece on Representative Bill Sanderson at carriegervin.substack.com. You should also be following me on Twitter, at FakeDanSavage. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.